So as you, if you have your Bibles with you or your favorite electronic device, we're going to be in Galatians 5 this morning. Uh, and as you remember, the whole chapter of Galatians 5, which we looked at the first half last week, is picking up the theme of freedom. What does it mean for us to live in freedom? In fact, the first verse of the chapter, again, which we looked at last week, basically says, hey, you've been set free so that you can be free. Don't return to slavery. And the slavery it's talking about is the whole argument Paul has been building for the first four chapters of Galatians, saying essentially, hey, by the way, if you take Jesus and try to add on to him, working really hard and following all the right religious rules and practices, thinking that will influence your salvation, you have entirely missed it. If you are trying to earn God's love, you are doing it wrong. And in fact, he says that's actually slavery. The only way you've ever been able to come to God is by his grace, through faith, because of the work of Jesus on your behalf, not your own effort, and you can't add anything to it. So that's the case he's been building for the first part of the book. But in our passage today, he actually pivots a little bit. So I'd like you to imagine a road that has two ditches, a ditch on either side. And Paul's essentially said, hey, this ditch over here about trying to be a really good, moral, law-abiding person so that God will like you, that's a ditch. It's slavery. It doesn't work. Don't do that. But then he also picks up and says, hey, by the way, don't use your freedom that Christ has purchased for you as an opportunity to gratify the flesh. Essentially, there's a ditch on the other side of the road which is simply saying, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it with who I want to do it with so that I can secure my own happiness, so that I can secure my own identity, my own sense of success, so that I will look and through my own efforts, I will secure what I feel like I most deeply need and want in this world. And what he essentially is saying is these two things, they actually have one core common truth that they share. They seem very different, right? Legalism and license. But what they have in common is is they are radically self-focused. They are both attempts at self-salvation. On one hand, I try to follow the rules and do the right things through my own efforts so that God will have to like me because I did good things. On the other hand, it's I have all this freedom, so I'm going to chase down whatever I think will make me happy and will fulfill my needs and my desires. They're both ways we are trying to be the answer to what's wrong in our problems. And the passage today, Paul's saying they're both slavery, but there's a way of freedom. And it's the way of walking in the spirit. And that's the whole concept we're going to look at today. So if you'll read with me, we're going to be in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16 through 26. The words are in your bulletin. They also have appeared on the screen behind me. Uh, So listen and read with me to God's very word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these, 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? God, thank you that you have desired uh, and earned freedom for us. That is what you offer in Christ. I ask that you would show that to us this morning through your word, not through uh, ideas that are my own. If there are any of those, would they fall away? Would they be forgotten? But would your word stand forever? Would it do what you promise uh, to not go out and come back empty, but to accomplish your purposes in our hearts and our lives? Holy Spirit, we ask us to show you the way Uh, to show us the way to walk with you, to walk following you. Would you meddle in our lives for our good and because you love us? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Having a child recently has opened up a whole new world uh, of observation into what it means to be human. Uh, Knox, our child, is a little bit over one year old, um, and he has a really strong affinity for things all things electrical, right? So he loves electrical outlets. He loves power cords. Um, and one of my um, probably favorite parenting moves I ever did is I had him up playing in my office when I was reorganizing. I was moving some furniture around. I was cleaning some things up. He was happy playing in the corner. And then I turned around and I looked and I'd had a little shop vacuum in there. And he had the cord. It was unplugged, of course, He had the cord, and he was trying to plug it into the electrical outlet. And this is like three months ago. So after I got over the initial response that every parent has, my child must be a prodigy, (laughs) I quickly ran over and said, please don't electrocute yourself. Your mom would kill me. (laughs) But as Knox has grown older, you can kind of see that there's an inner struggle that's starting to take place, right? Knox will see the electrical outlet, and he'll kind of slowly move over to it, he'll notice it, and then he'll look up to make sure I see him, right? He's, he's making eye contact with some parent you're noticing, right? And then he'll kind of reach out his arm and he'll say, no, because we've taught him, no, and, and being a good parent, I'll say, that's not for Knox, and he'll like, no, and then he'll reach closer, all the while still saying, no, no. Until you you can see the inner wheels grinding. Like, I know I'm probably not supposed to do this. I know I've been told this word no, that I think I know what it means. But it's it's right there. And I know this is probably going to lead to me being punished. And I don't like that. But, oh, now I'm going to touch it. And that's when as a parent you run over and you say, no, you really, I really meant it. You can't do that. But there's this inner struggle this inner conflict going on, even in our one-year-old. Now, it's a slightly cuter narrative when we talk about it being a small child doing it, but the same battle is going on inside most of us, right? This battle over uh, how are we going to live our lives? 
What narrative are we going to believe is true about ourselves, about God, about this world? Whether or not we will choose freedom or actually slavery. Now, for Knox, most of the conflict exists because he's not been around here too long. But in his heart are the same roots and the same problem that we have. We are broken by sin. And because of our sin nature, we continually seek to satisfy ourselves with everything but God. Right? We're broken and turned by sin, and we try to solve that problem with our own efforts. Both legalism and license are evidence of this. There are ways in which we're trying to secure our own sense of rightness, our own satisfaction, and neither will lead us to the freedom that we were made for. So we have that sin nature at play within us, but at the very same time, those of us who belong to Jesus, who have confessed him as our Lord and our Savior, we actually have God's very spirit, the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. It is a gift and a promise and a beautiful thing that is leading us, that is teaching us what it means to walk in the ways of God and of Christ. And therein lies the conflict. An old sin nature that has not died off yet, that will one day, but is still kicking and screaming. And a new nature led and directed by God's spirit dwelling within us. Bumping heads. Conflict. So what do we do? And that is why we need the passage that we have in front of us this morning. Because it invites us to take a closer look at this conflict, this battle, and to choose the way of God's spirit, the way of freedom. Now, as we walk through our text today, we're going to see three simple things. First, we're going to see in this battle, there are two opposing forces, right? There's the flesh and the spirit. So there's two opposing forces that are very different from one another. And then second, we're going to see that these two opposing forces would take us in very different directions. They would take us to very different results. And finally, we're going to see there's really only one battle plan. There's really only one way for us to fight in this internal conflict. So that's where we're going today. There you go, roadmap. Um, But the first thing we see is there's two opposing forces. We see that right in verse 17 where it says the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit and vice versa. They're opposed to one another. Uh, I think it's worth defining our terms clearly here. When we talk about the flesh, um, some have taken that to mean, oh, well, the body must be bad, right? The body's bad. The desires of the body, this physical world, that's bad. And what's really good is the spiritual things that exist up here apart from us. That's not what Paul's saying. That's dualism. The Bible doesn't support that. What Paul is talking about is the broken sin nature that we were all born with that has the propensity of our hearts to turn towards rebellion and disobedience than relationship with God. That seeks to gratify and save and secure our own sense of self than to find that in the gift of God. It is our heart that bends towards sin. And it creates a conflict. So on one side, we have our flesh. And on the other side, we have God's spirit. Now, when you become a Christian, one of the beautiful promises of scripture that I don't fully understand is that God's spirit comes to dwell within you. First Corinthians six says that your body is actually a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is another way of saying, hey, the body actually matters and it's something really dignified by God. But that's another sermon. 
And the Holy Spirit's job is applying to our hearts and our lives what Jesus has done. Reminding us of who he is, reminding us of what he has done, and doing the work that he's already accomplished for us in our hearts. The Holy Spirit basically shines a spotlight on who Jesus is and what he has done and cultivating those truths in our hearts. And it's also the deposit guaranteeing what is to come, which is a good reminder in this conflict that we know who wins. We'll get to that later. So we have these two opposing forces in conflict with one another. Have you ever felt that conflict? Have you ever been in that place where you you look up all of a sudden, you're like, why did I just do that? Again, I kept telling myself, I'm not going to do that. I did it again. What is going on? Now, some of you that have struggled with addiction, you know this really well, finding yourself in the place where you're saying, why do I run to that thing that I hate, that I know destroys my life and others, and yet here I am again and again? Or even something as simple with being patient with your kids. You're like, I love my kids. I like them. I want them around. But sometimes they push my buttons so much that I'm about to blow my lid. When we find ourselves with outbursts of anger or frustration that surprise and shock even us. I was uh, uh, recounted the story of a friend who experienced this really well. And uh, he had younger siblings and um, As we all know, God's gift of younger siblings is simply to teach us how many ways that we can be annoyed and pestered. And so he tells a story of having a younger sibling that was just bugging him, bugging him, bugging him, wouldn't let go. My friend's getting stressed and stressed. And the next thing he realizes, he has his hand around his younger brother's throat against the wall with his feet off the ground. Yeah, and that's what he said too, where he was like, What just happened? I just turned into the Incredible Hulk for a second and I freaked. Like, why did I do that? I don't hate my, I'm not trying to like strangle him. Like, why did I do that? I don't even understand my own actions. What is wrong with me? Well, like my friend, we're often asking the same question when we do things. What, what is wrong with me? Well, a lot actually, and it's called sin. And it is still at play in our lives. Now, Christ has defeated uh, the power of it, the penalty of it, but it has not been fully eradicated from our hearts and lives. So we have this inner conflict going on, and it's actually what Paul references in even longer detail in Romans 7. At the end of the chapter, you should take a look at that. But he essentially says, I don't understand my own actions. The things I do are not the things I want to do. And the things that I want to do, those are not the things I do. What is wrong with me? So if you have time later in this week, that would be a helpful kind of sister text um, that would even shed more light on this inner conflict that we all have. So there's an inner inner battle going on. Well, Why is that important? Why is it important to acknowledge the inner conflict? I think it's important because it protects us from two errors. One, it protects us from pride. Right, A lot of us go around thinking that we're, hey, you know, God's lucky to have me. Like, I'm I'm really starting to figure this life out. And when you have a moment where you pick somebody else up by the neck, that ship kind of sails, right? You realize that you don't have moral high ground to occupy. So acknowledging that there's broken and twisted and sinful places in our heart kind of keeps us from an overinflated sense of pride that we don't actually need help 
from his Savior. And on the other hand, it protects us from some of us on the other end of the spectrum that might tend towards self-deprecation and despair. Right? When we see the presence of like, ah, I keep doing this again. What is wrong with me? When we ask those questions, some of us want to stick with the answer, well, I'm just a horrible, horrible person and I'm really messed up. In part, yes, but that's not all that's true of you. And we actually see that in this text with a little phrase that's tucked in in verse 17, where Paul writes that the flesh would keep you from doing what you want to do, what you actually want to do. And that's a reminder that if you are in Christ, you actually are a new creation. That that good parts of your heart want the things of God, want to know him, want to love him, want to pursue him. And the fact that there is a struggle going on only means that you are God's child and he has not come back for you yet. It only means that he has not yet made all things new, which he has promised and guaranteed that he he is going to do. Now, the, the verdict of this battle is not up for grabs. Christ has already won. And that should encourage and invigorate us even as we struggle. We know the outcome. So do not despair when you see the ugly parts of your heart. And don't run away and don't try to hide, but take them to Christ. We'll talk about later how to do that. But this is only a conflict for those that know Jesus. For those that have God's spirit within them, only for Christians. So if you have not called Christ your Lord and Savior, if you are not looking to him, if if you are trying to save yourself, this isn't your story. All you have is the flesh that's just going to take you down to slavery. You need an outside force to save you. And if that's something you're not sure about or have questions about, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Many of our leaders would be happy to have that conversation with you. But the rest of the message, the rest of the text, assumes ones that have God's spirit and are participating in this inner struggle. So it's a conflict going on, but the second thing we see is they are leading us to two opposite results. There's two lists in this passage illustrating what each of these forces causes to grow in our hearts. Now Paul says the works of the flesh are obvious, and then he briefly rattles off a highlight reel. Now it's not... Don't think of it as like Paul has just listed off every sin that there is. He's just kind of saying, here's a representative sample of all the things that are wrong with us when we go our own way, when we follow our own broken hearts. And as I mentioned earlier, there, there really are two ditches, and he's focusing on this one of what happens when we try to, by our own efforts, secure our own happiness, our own sense of self. And I want to walk through the list and really kind of illustrate how are each of these things radically self-focused. So if we start at the top, sexual immorality is really focused on my pleasure and my happiness, my way, not in the way that God has designed or intended. If you think of sorcery or idolatry, there really are attempts to control your world, spiritual forces, or, or even the things, finding the things that I can control or manipulate to make me successful, happy, or prosperous. Things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are all things that say, I should get what I want. You shouldn't be doing things that upset me. I should have all the shiny things that you have. My opinions matter, and you shouldn't get in my way. 
Now, drunkenness and orgies, which in this context is talking about drunken revelry, less so of the sexual sin, which would have been covered at the beginning of this. But drunkenness and and trying to medicate our problems is a way of saying, I'm going to find the solution to the things that hurt in my life and world. I'm going to find happiness through my own plan. And all of these things really reveal a heart that's trying to find its own way. They're evidence of a heart that is committed to saving itself, to finding its own source of rightness and standing apart from God. It is a heart that is pursuing things that it actually thinks are the path to freedom and happiness, that actually believes the promises that are held out of sin, saying, this is what you need, this is the way to get it, and this will make you happy. But ultimately, it leads to slavery. Okay, if you're in here and you're a student, I want to talk to you right now and regale you with stories of my glory days as a student. The rest of you are welcome to to listen in, but if you're in middle school or high school, uh, when I was in high school, I thought that freedom meant getting to do what I wanted to do, right? I didn't want a curfew. I wanted a car. I wanted to be able to stay out late. I wanted to be able to make my own choices. So I did things like, please don't judge me, I bleached my hair blonde because that was cool at the time. And I put all kinds of spiky stuff in my hair and I decorated it in interesting ways. And then I thought, well, that's not interesting enough. I'm going to dye my hair blue. So I, you know, I did that and, you know, had a, like a double mohawk at one point and frequently wore very odd clothes that I bought at the thrift store because I thought, man, this is, I am so cool. I'm going to punk rock shows. I'm a real rebel. Now, this is how rebellious I was. I was still singing in the church choir, except when I had blue hair because mom said that would be a bad idea. But then I joined it again after my, the, it washed out. But I was saying, this is freedom. I get to do what I want, go to the concerts I want, dress how I want, look as ridiculous as I want with the hair that I have. But it really wasn't freedom. Probably didn't realize that until about 10 years later. But what I was really doing was trying to get people to notice me, people to like me. I was trying to work really hard to find an identity. Who am I? How can I matter? How can I find my place, my unique place in this world to try to be cool? And it turns out that wasn't freedom because I had to keep working really hard to keep people noticing me. And it actually made me a slave to other people's opinions. Now, that's a small example, but oftentimes the things in front of us that dangle out and hold an idea of freedom really actually lead us into slavery. The world says it's freedom, right? The ability to get what you want, to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, and that's how you'll be happy. But it's really a lie. It's really slavery because you will always be chasing some other pleasure and satisfaction. It never quite fully lives up to the billing. Or you're going to have to try to protect the things that you have. Or you're trying to figure out how to get the things that other person has that seems to be a little bit happier than you. And you can never rest and you can never be secure because really they can't deliver on the promise of freedom. And if you're here right now and your world is focused on yourself, and your efforts to secure your own identity, your own happiness, your own security, I would suggest that what you have is maybe not actually freedom, but slavery 
according to God's definition. And then maybe it looks more like the works of the flesh than the works of the spirit. Okay, we all struggle. Why is it a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because a life that is marked by this kind of radical self-centeredness, the passage says someone that demonstrates those kind of things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says it clearly in verse 21. Now, some of you are like, well, hold on. I know this deal. It's grace alone, faith alone. Like, I can't disqualify myself by doing anything dumb. Well, and you're right. What this is talking about in the passage is those that make a habit of living this as their lifestyle. Not those that struggle, those that mess up in one or all of these, but those that this is the pattern that marks their life. But it kind of makes sense if we think about it, right? If our life is marked by continual and consistent attempts to save ourselves with ourselves, how could we inherit the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is only reserved for those people who say, I can't do it. It's only reserved for those people that say, I'm really messed up. All of my efforts to save myself have actually made things work. And when I try to fix what I've broken, it turns out it's broken into more pieces now. The kingdom of God only exists for those who say, I cannot do this. Jesus, please save me. There is no place for self-salvation in God's kingdom. And both legalism and licentiousness, they're both attempts to do the same thing. And they don't work. Now let's look at the other list, which looks quite different. It's that of the fruit of the Spirit, right? These are the attributes it's talking about, the attributes that God's Spirit causes to grow within you because you are connected to him, because you are a new creation, because you have Christ, he will cause these things to start growing. It kind of has an echo of something that Jesus said in John 15. Do you remember? He said, I'm the vine and you are the branches, If you want to grow fruit, if you want to be fruitful and have a life of God, you have to be connected to me. And by the way, apart from me, you can do nothing because branches are connected to the source. They're not the source. We grow when we're connected to God, when we're connected to God's spirit. And as we are in relationship with him, he causes these things to grow within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when you, when you read that list, does it remind you of anybody? Because when I think about it, that's exactly how Jesus treats us. Well, think about love, for example. Right? What does 1 John 3 tell us? By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Well, how about Joy. Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, making us new, bringing us home for joy. He endured much suffering. How about patience? How many times did he deal with his disciples' knuckleheaded decisions, lack of faith? Oh, I know Jesus, you should do this. You can imagine him just being like, three years, three years of my life with you all, and this is what I, no, but he didn't. He was kind. He was patient with their (laughs) knuckleheadedness continually. What about kindness? How many people with leprosy, with disease, with disability, did Jesus draw near to and heal? How about goodness? When he comes to you, he never has a hidden agenda. 
He's never pulling a bait and switch. He's always coming with love and grace and goodness. How about faithfulness? Well, 2 Timothy reminds us that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Or gentleness. Jesus' own words from Matthew 11, where he invites us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or self-control. How about when he knew he was headed to the cross? He knew and he asked God, is there another way to do this? That looks pretty bad. And God said, this is the way. He said, okay, I will willingly, knowingly go to the cross to secure the salvation of my family. It's a little bit of self-control. It's a little bit of an intentional living. This list really points us to Christ and what he looks like. And that makes sense if the Spirit's job is to point us to Jesus and make us look more like him. Whereas the first list is really all about self and our own efforts, which leads us into slavery. This list is really about what God is causing to grow within us that leads us to freedom. And in that sense, is radically different. Well, it begs the uncomfortable question, What's growing in your life? What's growing in your life? What does your life look like? What is it marked by? Is it focused on self? On trying to be the answer to what is wrong with you? To what you do? To trying to work harder or be better so you can figure this thing out and have a better life? Is it leading you to freedom or slavery? Now, Here's the wrong response. I don't want you to go out and be, okay, now I need to work really hard to be a better person now because the wrong kind of fruit is going in my life, right? We've just said for the entire sermon up to now, you can't save yourself and trying so leads you to slavery. Don't do that. So what do we do? What are we left with? How do we fight? How do we grow? If I'm not the answer, if what I do doesn't work, and that's our final That is our final point this morning. There is only one battle plan. There is only one plan of attack in this conflict. Now, as I was reading the text, I was ready. I was looking for it. Okay, they're opposed to each other. How do I fight? All right, show me what's the the one-two combination that's going to help me have victory in this area. What what can I do? How can I be more disciplined? I, I was waiting for that list. You know what I read? Walk. That's a letdown. I'm ready to fight, walk, follow. The commands in this passage are really simple and almost a little frustrating. Walk by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Doesn't sound a lot like fighting, does it? But if our efforts at self-salvation only lead us to slavery, this is the only way to true freedom. We have to trust in a power outside of ourselves. So walk by the Spirit, keep in step in the Spirit. What does that mean? How do I do that? I'm going to tell you a secret. It's really simple. It's repent and believe. Repent and believe is really the rhythm of the Christian life from the beginning to the end. It is how we start out as a Christian when the Spirit starts growing faith in our life. We come to Christ by repenting saying, we can't do this, we're messed up, and believing and saying, you have made promises, you have died, you have risen again, that is where I'm going to place my trust. Repent 
and believe. It looks like, first and foremost, giving up on our efforts to fix ourselves, to find our own happiness, and to turn to God's Spirit to lead us in a better way. How does that work? How do we repent and believe? Because there's going to be times when we turn towards self-centeredness, where we turn towards our own efforts. So how do we respond? Well, let me, let me just do some examples, right? We, work, we looked at the works of the flesh. We looked at the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at each and say, what would repenting and believing look like if we were to consider this? How would it work? Let's take one like jealousy, right? That's on the list. Often the act of jealousy is just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Now, if you're like me, we really like to deal with the surface sins. Let me change my behavior and act differently. But what's going on in the jealousy is something deeper. So imagine that I'm somebody that's just pretty insecure, right? I I don't feel great about myself. I'm I'm not sure people like me. I'm often thinking that I'm doing and saving the wrong things. I think my spiritual gift is actually awkwardness, right? And then I see Joe. Joe walks into a room. His smile lights it up. He's got a great job. He seems always happy. He's He's tall, he's strong, he's funny without trying. I'm awkward without trying. I look at Joe, I'm jealous. I want to be Joe. I want Joe's life. But is that really my sin? Do I really want Joe's job? Do I really want Joe? Well, maybe a little bit, okay. (laughs) But what's really going on is I'm searching for something different. I'm searching for a deep heart need, and that jealousy is revealing that. What I really want is to feel like I have a worthwhile identity. What I really want is to feel like I'm not a big mistake, to feel like I matter, to feel comfortable in my own skin. What I really want is my heart is hungering for a deep and actually really valid need that the jealousy is just a sign that there's something radically deeper going on beneath. So repenting and believing, repenting is owning. God, actually, I, what I really, my problem is not really jealousy. That's a problem. But my problem is I am looking in all the wrong places to find satisfaction, to find identity, to find hope. And owning that and saying, I'm sorry. That's, that's silly and it's dumb and I know I'm not going to find it there. And it's actually going to lead me to slavery. Because if I get Joe's life, I'm going to be constantly looking out for a better Joe that's happier than I am, and and on and on the wheel turns. But this kind of repenting isn't easy. It's actually a lot harder because it, it causes us to have to stop and sit with our sin and to ask, what is going on underneath that? Yes, I may have, like, picked somebody up off the, the ground because I was really angry and frustrated. What's going on in my heart? Like, what's going on underneath? It's not that I just need to stop being a jerk to my sibling, right? That's part of it, but what is the place in my heart that I'm looking for something there that I'm never going to find? And learning to repent of that, to take it to God. And then there's the believing part, right? We said repent and believe. And the believing part is saying, how has Christ already given me the thing that I'm so desperately searching for? How does he say, yes, you have an identity. It's not loser, awkward person. It's you are a dearly loved child of mine that I paid my life for. And that actually can't change if you say something awkward or not. Yes, you have a sense of purpose because I have called you into my family. I have given you gifts and I've given you work to do. How is it that Christ already offers me the thing that I'm looking for? 
repent, and then turn and believe and sit with the truth of who God is, of what he has given you, and let your heart be changed by that. Repent and believe. Or take something like from the fruit of the Spirit, right? If you think about something like patience, right? How do we, if I, if I think like, okay, it re, is revealed to me that I am not a patient person, which every time I get in the car on I-4, it is revealed to me that I am not a patient person because somehow I'm crazy enough to think that I deserve to not be cut off by people passing me in the exit lanes or that I think that lanes and blinkers mean something or that I took driver's ed Getting in the car actually reveals that I'm a really self-righteous person. Now we're having a little confession time. But something like patience, when I start seeing it, what's underneath that? Why am I an impatient person? Well, maybe at the root of it, it's that I think that the world should operate a certain way. That I think that what I want, when I want, really matters. And the people that get in the way of me accomplishing that are really frustrating to me. Repenting is actually owning, not just, oh, let me be more patient and tolerant when I drive with people that drive terrible. But maybe it's saying, God, I really want to be God, and that's the problem. I want things to operate on my schedule, my way, and it's a much deeper problem than let me try to be more relaxed and calm while I'm driving. Repent. And how would we believe on that part? Well, I think believing here is looking at how does God treat me with patience? And we can do this with any of the fruit of the, spirit, of the Spirit here, but how does God treat me with patience? Right? In my, in my bumbling, in my sin, in my myriad mistakes, how, what does God do? I mean, he, he is entitled. He's entitled to perfect obedience. He's entitled to demand, I've made the world. Stop messing it up. But what does he do? He is kind. He is patient and long-suffering. He is gentle in healing and guiding and leading and growing me, despite how much he should be impatient with me. And as I see his patience toward me, as I repent of the root causes of my impatience, I start to see that fruit growing in my heart. I start to be changed by looking deeply at who Jesus is and how he has loved me. Walk in step with the Spirit is to repent and believe. But because it's be, it is to become more conformed with the things God's Spirit cares about. More conformed with the way God has designed you, the way he has made the world. And repenting and believing is the act of finding ourselves out of alignment with that. Of like, yes, patience is, does not, impatience does not look like you. These sins of the flesh, they don't look like you. And repenting and believing what he has already done on our behalf. That is how we fight. That is how we follow him. That is how we align with him. Well, here's the good news. The plan of the attack does not depend on you learning to be a really good fighter. It's about learning to depend on God and his spirit. It is about learning to ask for help, to be honest and open to where God is pointing out the places where our life is out of step with the spirit so that we can run to him to find hope and healing. Well, think back to my story about Knox, right? Who's going to win the war over the electrical outlets, right? That's not really in question. I'm bigger, I'm stronger. For now, I'm smarter and more coordinated, right? I'm not going to let him electrocute himself. Like, that's not in question. That's not up for grabs. 
And what Knox needs most is not to learn, don't touch things. Yes, he needs to learn that. But what Knox needs to learn most is to trust his father. What Knox needs to learn most is that I love him. I am, I am seeking his good. I am doing what is right and good for him. And I want to lead him in the way of life and freedom. What he needs to learn to do is to keep turning towards me to receive my love and my care and my guidance. So it is with us. We certainly need the sins of our heart addressed, but what we don't need is behavior modification to become really good moral people and that's it. What we really need to do is to learn to trust that our father is good, that he loves us, that he is offering us something truer and better than we would ever secure by our own efforts to either follow the rules or live a wild life that we think is going to make us happy. We need to learn to turn to him to receive his love and care. And the way we do that is repent and believe. My brothers, my sisters, there's a battle. But the outcome is not undecided. It's a, it's a war that is over and a battle that we still fight, if that tension makes sense. But we fight and we struggle in the power of a savior who's already defeated sin and death who is risen, we fight and struggle as one who is dearly loved by the God of the universe and has been given his very spirit to lead us in the way of freedom. Remember that. Remember his goodness as you wrestle through this. And as you start to do this process of repent and believe, you will see God's fruit grow in your life because he will put it there. He will make it grow. Our hope is in him and his power and his work. Let's thank God for that being true this morning. God, I confess that I often think that the way to fix what's wrong with me is me. And so far, that doesn't work out too good. Would you lovingly and graciously expose the ways in which our hearts are seeking self-salvation? Show us the futility of it Show us the ways in which it does not work so that we can repent and run to you and see that what we're looking for all along, you are already offering a better and more permanent version of us in Christ Jesus. Lead us in the way of freedom. Lead us in the way of the spirit we ask for our good and for your glory. And we ask it in the name of our conquering savior, Jesus. Amen.